This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Hey, everybody, it's Danielle. Just one quick mention before we get into the podcast. While we were recording this, there were a bunch of very hot men building a very tall fence outside of my very thin window, and uh, that noise shows up in this recording. So thanks for understanding. On with the show. Hi, hi, everyone. Linda Sievertson here with Danielle, and we are coming to you with one of today's most beloved authors, Dr. Brene Brown. If you're one of the over 25 million viewers who have watched her 2010 TEDx Houston talk on the power of vulnerability, you know that she is a research professor at the University of Houston and has spent the past 13 years studying vulnerability, courage, worthiness, and shame. Brene is one of those rare authors who has seen three of her books, Rising Strong, Daring Greatly, and The Gifts of Imperfection, all hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Her groundbreaking research has been featured all over the major media, and she is also the founder and CEO of The Daring Way and Courage Works, which is an online community that offers e-courses, workshops, and interviews for individuals and organizations ready for braver living, loving, and leading. Brene lives in Houston with her husband, Steve, and their two children, Ellen and Charlie. And with our whole hearts bursting, we are so grateful that you are joining us here, Brene. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be with y'all. Thank you for having me. Okay, we always start with a blessing. So everybody, no matter where you are, you can afford to take a deep breath. Exhale. We're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now. And by brilliance... We mean light. So, Brene, in your conversation with our friend Jonathan Fields, you said that comparison is a shame counterpoint to creativity. Since so many of our listeners are creative beings, can you share a bit about this topic? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, shame is this sense that we're not enough, that there's something about us that makes us less than. And I think one way we confirm our less thanness. Mm-hmm. One way we really open the door to shame is we dig into comparison. I know that even for myself, I can really fall into it very quickly. I can just be going about my work, proud of what I'm doing, feeling good about the contribution I'm trying to make. It's hard and it's frustrating, but I can feel good about it. And then all of a sudden, I look up for one second and check someone else's lane and see what they're doing and see what's happening. And all of a sudden, I'm in the not enough place again. Mm-hmm. And so, I think it comparison is really very dangerous and very fueled by the culture today. 
I want to talk about um, inspirational rhythm for a second. So we talked to Seth Godin recently, and his philosophy is if you wait for inspiration, like you're never going to write. You just, you got to get the train out of the station. And then there's those of us who, you know, myself personally, if I'm not inspired, like it's no deal. I just don't write. I really have to wait for, to, I got to hear angels in my studio. So which camp are you in? Motivation precedes action or where are you? Mm, I'm some, uh, yes. And <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, for me, you can't pluck words out of me if I'm not ready to give them to you. It doesn't matter what kind of bullshit pressure you put me under. It doesn't matter who, you know, calls from the publishing office. If I can't deliver it, I can't deliver it. I'm not in that place. And that's I'm out of my process. At the same time, I can use waiting for inspiration as a tool of resistance And so I'm kind of yes and. Inspiration is important for me, but at the same time, there's always stuff I can be doing to pull the train out of the station. It may not be the inspired thing that's going to pull everything together, but there's always small work I can be doing. Mm. My theory is there's always the acknowledgement section. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like if you're not inspired to write that intensely profound chapter that's going to be it like you can work on your acknowledgement section and just like move things forward that day you know it's really interesting to me i'm so this is a really great conversation i don't think i've ever talked about this with anyone before you know one of the things that is even if you dig deeper into this conversation is the question about how do you recognize inspiration and so I think there's this part of me that was always waiting for, you know, the, uh, you know, like all of the shit to come down from on high. But I think that the truth is, if I stay in the zone, I can find it anywhere. I can find it on a billboard when I'm driving yeah. to my office. I can find it watching episodes of Law and Order, which I watch like a crazy person when I'm writing. I have to make sure that I don't overlook the small threads in favor of the big quilt. And Mm -hmm. so I think just staying open is also a way to pull the train out of the station. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, my most recent discovery about this is if I'm not inspired, I'm on the wrong track. My train is not where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like recently I'm working on a book right now. I really had this vision that, you know, this is going to be perennial. Very, I want it to feel like perennial, timeless wisdom. And you can be able to open a page and just, it's going to be on forgiveness or freedom or whatever. Just, you know, oh. and it was clogging me right up. And my way of getting through it is I lie on my living room floor. I just lie down. I have to be prone. And I just thought, I really want to be current. I just want to talk about current things and forget this, forget this timelessness vibe. And that was it. That's all I needed. I could hear the train click on the tracks. And yeah, so a lot of times for me, stuck is just really just wrong direction. Oh my God. You have no idea how much I relate to that. When I was writing (laughs) Rising Strong, I don't know, you can make that. Okay, so my husband has a theory on this, so I'll share with you, but... When I was writing Rising Strong, I love maps. I love cartography. And I became obsessed with maps. And so I read like literally 20 books. And I mean big ass books on cartography. Boring big books. (laughs) I uh, found an antique map dealer in Houston. I spent more money than I should have on antique maps. And then I didn't even use maps. And so I was like, oh my God, was I procrastinating? And Steve was like, you know what? You wrote a meaningful book, so don't you dare 
defile or put down any part of that process, including the maps. You have to do what you have to do to get where you're going. Because I was like, I can't believe I have like $500 worth of freaking antique maps and I've got pictures of, you know, sea monsters and I know more about cartography than any person should, but, you know, Danish cartography from the Gilded Age. I mean, I was reading like nature books. And he's like, something inside of you needed that to get to where you're going. So you've got to honor that and we got to hang up those damn maps whether you like it or not, because it was part of what got you there. I have a sort of related topic, but it's a different twist, and I would love to hear your take. So I was finishing up my memoir recently while I'm still in the final tweaks, but there was an evening where I got really irritated with my fiancé, and I don't get irritated with him hardly ever. We almost never have any problems, and we've been together a long time. But I used that energy. I remember he went to bed and I just thought, you know, I should really talk to him and work it out. And I thought, no, I need to use this energy. I could feel that it was brewing inside of me and it was creating something. So I went downstairs and I sat at my computer and I thought, there's still a few pieces from my marriage that I haven't worked on because they've been too hard. They've been too painful. So I'm going to take this angst and I'm going to use it to infuse this other work that I've been avoiding. And I wrote probably one of the most powerful pieces of the whole book based on using that feeling to go into an old angst. So kind of related. Do you ever do that? Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I totally do. I mean, I think... You know, one of the danger zones that I have, and I'm so curious to see if you'll relate to it. This, this is also something I never really talk about. One of my problems is, you know, we all have our superpower and kind of related to that superpower. And my belief is our kryptonite, you know, <laughs> strengths and limitations on the same continuum, right? Sure. Which is why I don't like throwing out the bad stuff because it's really related to the good stuff. So I think one of my superpowers is really observing human behavior. It's what I do as a researcher. It's how I'm trained. But one of my kryptonite pieces is sometimes when I have that moment, the fight with Steve, mm-hmm. a really tough parenting moment, I will detach from my life and kind of float above it and watch me in this struggle so I can use it for writing. The and narrator. Yes. <laughs> and oh, my God. That's Oh, I love that. That's exactly what I do. And it's kind of dangerous. It's really dangerous. In fact, I was talking with my mentor about that recently, Betsy Rappaport. I don't know if you know her, but... She was saying it's when you have in your mind, you're creating the shapely narrative and you have a narrative that's too good to lose, right? So you get more attached to the shapely narrative than what's happening in real life present time. Shut up. Shut up. Yeah. I mean, another, I would call that really a Buddhist writing a story. I mean, so I would give half major props to that. I mean, it's that observation mode is really the goal of a lot of sects of Buddhism, which has you be able to not be attached. But then we're like, hey, we have books to write. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that's, this would be a great, this would be a great closing. How very untethered soul of you, Danielle. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, I do love that. Brene, do you read your reviews? Um, no, I do not. Can you tell everybody why? Uh, it doesn't serve the work. So everything I do in my life related to my work and everything my company does and my team does, our bottom line question is, does it serve the work? And so like, I've never even watched the Ted talk on vulnerability. What? Um, yeah, no, I've never seen it because it doesn't serve the work because I think what? if I watched it, I would be super critical. I've read the transcript and I, that was even like, I kind of put it down halfway because I was like, oh, I should have talked about this this way and this this thread leads to this and I forgot the arc here. Oh. And so 
if it doesn't serve the work, I don't do it. And so to me, watching the TED Talk would mean I'd get very self-critical yeah. and I'd probably hold back the next time I spoke. And so I don't, I, it doesn't serve the work to read the reviews. Now, okay, so the critic in me is thinking, well, what do you mean it doesn't serve the work? Of course it serves the work because you're out in the public so often. If you see the piece, you might actually like what you see and feel more confident next time you're out. Like you're automatically assuming a negative. Uh, probably, no, you know what, I... I think I'm safely assuming <laughs> that I'll be critical of my appearance. Okay, I gotcha. And I think it's a pretty safe assumption that, like, I'm really proud of it. Like, I'm really, sure. really proud of it. And sure. so it's just mine to lose to watch it, I think. So, yeah. And so what I do do is I do have a team that reads everything. And then they filter. <laughs> we have a saying, but it's probably too bad and too cussy for this oh, no, podcast. Oh, no, no, I'm hearing good company here. Go, Go ahead. Yeah, no, we have like our motto is filter like an MFR. Um, <laughs> like we filter, they filter, and then they give me anything that's constructive and that I need to know. And my preference is that it's more constructive versus you're awesome. Like, look, here's the thing. If you think I should drop dead and I'm the worst thing that's ever happened to this country and the zeitgeist or whatever, I don't care and I don't need to know. And I also don't want the pressure of knowing that without you, I would be dead. Right. That whole pedestal thing is yeah. so incredibly uncomfortable. I had a woman recently, I loved her so much, but she complimented me so much that it was uncomfortable to me and she did it publicly a lot. And recently she found more fault with me than anyone has, at least to my face, in a very, very long time. And I thought, you know, I don't like the over-complimenting because it almost always seems to go the other way, eventually. No, yeah, it's it's two sides of the same coin. And so I look for, like, if someone says, look, read your book, appreciated it, but you really were negligent around a whole body of literature yeah. over here, that's super helpful. I need to know that because it's, yeah. but I think here's the good thing. I mean, I'm familiar with both of your work. And so here's a good thing for me. If you see me in the grocery store and I'm having a freaking meltdown <laughs> and everything's going bad and I don't have kids that are little enough to throw Cheetos or anymore, but in those days, no one who really understands my work is ever surprised. It's not like I've set sure. myself up like an evangelical preacher that I've got this perfect <laughs> life or something. And so my experience is the same as yours. When people are like, I love you, I love you, I love you. know, doesn't someone have a song about that? Like Eminem <laughs> or somebody has a song about oh. like, yeah, like, I, you know, is it, it Macklemore? Is it Macklemore? Um, He'd be like someone who would do it for sure. Yeah, I, I, More yeah. so than Eminem for sure. Yeah. But there's a song. He'd be like creepy stalker song. It was more stealth than that. It was more profound because it was like, I love you. I love you. I think you're the best. I think you're the best. Can I have coffee with you? Why aren't you answering my text? Why aren't you responding on Twitter? I hate you. Oh, um, wow. It's that thing. Oh, that's, that's no bueno. Yeah. Okay, prayer. Do you pray yes. before you write? Do you have a prayer practice? Yes, I have a huge prayer practice. <gasps> I'm a deeply, deeply, deeply faithful person. Mm. Yeah, I'm in a pretty traditional Episcopalian, actually. I'm very progressive in my beliefs and thoughts, but also I teach vacation Bible school. Now, <laughs> once they find out what I'm teaching, chances are I'll get fired. But yeah, but prayer, I have a huge prayer practice. Mm. Love it. I love that y'all start with a blessing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just it's sacred because you say it is. So we say it is. Yeah. Amen. Uh, what's your favorite mistake career or otherwise just like a doozer that was like it was such a doozer 
you have to just be like, that was amazing. <laughs> the failure of my first book. What? Yeah. Uh, why a failure? So just give us some context. Is just nobody bought it. Um, yeah. So I was really excited about writing a book about shame. I couldn't get an agent or a publisher. I borrowed money from my parents because my husband and I were in graduate school. Mm. And I self-published it. And it was, I got into a lot of trouble at my university for doing that. But I didn't care. It was really popular among therapists and coaches. And so Penguin bought it and I kind of updated it and rewrote it. And then I felt some relief from the shame of having self-published because I just, I really got into some trouble, which I kind of stay in trouble. So my way of dealing with that when the book came out was I will have nothing to do with the unsavory act of selling or promoting this book. Uh, And so it failed like you have no idea. Because you had Uh, shame about it, right? Yes, I totally had shame Uh, about it. And um, it was really hard. It came down to a call where my publisher called and said, hey, do you want to buy some extra copies of, I thought it was just me. And I was like, oh, yeah, my mom and her friends would love some. And he's like, no, like a couple of thousand. And I was like, no, what what are you talking about? And he said, "Um, it's going to be... Pulp. Yeah. yeah. I said, what does that mean? He's like, pulp, like pulp fiction, like composted. Like Christmas cheery tripper time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you have a favorite book out of all of your books? No, I hope they all, and I believe they all contribute in the way I was hoping they would contribute Mm -hmm. to a conversation. Mm -hmm. You had two back to back. I mean, you had one on the bestseller list as a paperback and one coming out a couple months later as a bestseller as a hardback. What's that like? Oh my God, it was a total hat trick. I had no idea. <laughs> you, know, you know what? I didn't know until Liz Gilbert. She announced you know, it. She tweeted like, holy shit, Renee right. has three right. books on the top 10 New York Times. And so I was like, yeah, I was shocked. I still have that printed and posted <laughs> up in my study. It was a great moment. And everybody knows that, at least in this business, that you have kind of zero control over that. Yeah. You know, for anyone's book that came out even closely around the art of tidying up like oh, you're please. like yeah <laughs> or some major cookbook especially if you because you're we're in that you know self-help miscellaneous thing yep. so it was just it was a moment and it was a great moment and we celebrated it and then it was gone mm-hmm. and that's okay too yeah and so important to celebrate right I mean there's been times along the way for me I was like yeah we did it great but we're on to the next thing so those are some of my not so favorite mistakes. You just you get in the grind. Um, next question: book proposals. Do publishers still want them from you? Do you still write them for your own sake? Where are you at with the whole book proposal necessity or not necessity? It's really weird. I'm kind of having a moment because I think I used to live and die by that. Like I, like everyone else, had every book ever written on how to write a book proposal. And I guess it has changed for me, to be honest. It is like I call and say, I have an idea. That's awesome. That's the goal, babe. You did it. Yeah, I guess so. You know, it's funny because I'm what I'm feeling right now is I've got some embarrassment about that. But <laughs> I guess I've worked my ass off. It's been 15 uh, yeah. years. Yeah. But the other thing is, and I don't know if that's because I've earned that or if it's because it never matters what the book proposal says. It's never going to be my book. Speaking of book plans, everybody, we're just dropping in to say, guess what? We have your big, beautiful book plan. It is a downloadable digital program that really walks you step by step. It is the map we all wanted when we first started writing on how to create a book proposal that gets you a deal or a book proposal that clarifies your vision of where your business is going. 
Go to yourbigbeautifulbookplan.com. No, it's about the numbers. I mean, if you've got three books on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time for the rest of your life, I mean, unless you wrote the biggest piece of shit ever and you were so proud of it that you went screaming about it nonstop on the airwaves, you will always be able to sell a book. I I think when you reach that status, when you just, you kind of like, hey, I got an idea and you know it's going to be another dying, it's yes. I think... You should drop your last name. You could just be Brene right now. <laughs> like Cher. Uh, yeah. Yes. Do you know Brene? I was talking with a client last night, a new woman I'd never met her. We were talking over Skype. And I said, you know what? I've got to go. I'm interviewing Brene Brown in the morning. I want to get to sleep. And she started crying. She put her hands on her face and went, <gasps> and started weeping. Because that's how much your work meant to her. Thanks. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think that's how much people mean to me because (laughs) it is because I feel like it's not, you know, people always like if I'm doing a media interview or something and people are like, yeah, you have a lot of fans. I'm like, I really don't have any, I may have a couple of fans, but what I have is a major kick-ass community of like-spirited people who we all want to believe that we're not alone in trying to do something different with our lives. And so we're all pretty emotional about it, myself included. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, and let me tell you, they're not fans. They're community members. Like they, let they, have, <laughs> they let me know, and they let each other know in the most incredible, unusual, not common, respectful way. Can you give us an example? Yeah, I mean, like when we talk about hard things, like on my Facebook page or something, which is where I do a lot of my – I'm kind of not blogging anymore. I'm doing kind of more micro-blogging on Facebook because yeah. it's kind of where the people are. Yeah. I'd be so curious to know what y'all think about that. But when I do that – you know, people disagree and they do so really respectfully. And sometimes I'll come on and I'll be pissed off about something and I'll be like, look, sorry, you feel that way. I disagree completely and blah, blah, blah. And somebody will say, easy does it. Their heart's tugging in a different direction. I'll be like, you're right. Thanks. Yeah. Mm. This point about microblogging is really interesting. And what I do is I want to write a beefier piece and post it to my site and all social platforms because my blog is my book. It's always my next right, book. Right. And you know, the evolution of that has been me saying to my team, guys, I can't write two posts a week for a lot of reasons. One, I really want to give every post my all. I mean, some posts are, it's like a day, it's a day. And I want to do that because it's, it's got to come out and because it's going to be a chapter in something someday or, or maybe not for me, my, window to the world right now is Instagram. And I'm finding that there's actually a lot more interaction on Instagram. So I'll put always visual. Now I used to be no visuals at all. (laughs) I was in this really haughty spot of, you know, it's all about the words. Just let the text speak. This is my digital temple. Uh, we don't need to sell it. I totally did that. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm just like, hey, it doesn't work unless there's a picture, people. And <laughs> and I let Instagram sort of tell that story. And then it goes from there. And then it goes up on Facebook. And I'm also double posting. And we've seen a lot of success with this with numbers where same day it goes out on all platforms. And because Facebook is high engagement, but it's high noise. I post the same post, you know, it comes out on a Tuesday. I put it out on a Saturday and I get almost equal engagement. And when I talk to people about that strategy, they're like, well, I don't want to annoy people. It's like, people are there. 
because they're interested in, in what you're putting out. So the people who already read the post on Tuesday are going to be like, oh, there it is again. And they're just going to move on. Or they might reread it or they might forward it to a friend. And then you get all those people who weren't there on Tuesday and are just grateful it was there. So we've learned to embrace the divinity of redundancy on social media. No, I am with you a thousand percent. And I put it everywhere because I feel like if you follow me, you're looking for some of the stuff. And it's crazy to think you're going to catch it in all three places because I don't catch what I'm looking for in all three places. So I love what you're talking about. And I think, I do think ubiquity is important around, you know, and I'm with you. I love Instagram. I follow you on Instagram. So our listeners love Oprah. And we know you love Oprah. So, I do. So take us back to the first time you're sitting there or standing there with her. Was a little surreal? Oh, yes. Um, no, it wasn't like a little surreal. It was, you know what happened the night before? I went out with the producers in Chicago to dinner at Ralph Lauren. I'll never forget. Oh, wow. Um, and I was coming out, and the producers walked back to wherever they were going, and Murdoch, my manager, and I were walking back to the hotel, and he's like, where are you, Brene? And I'm like, I kind of, I thought that was just a literal question. So I looked up and I was like, I think we're on Michigan and something. He's like, he's like, no, where are you? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, you were not even at dinner. Whoa. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm kind of floating above watching. And he's like, man, you do not want to miss this. This is going to be a big deal tomorrow. Like get back in your body. What is it going to take? And so, you know, it's something I had thought about for so long and I have such respect for what she's done and how she's done it. And I think it was a big moment. And so it was the first time I ever wrote a permission slip. And so I think part of my fear was that I needed to not lose my shit when I saw her and I needed to be, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm an academic. That's a really, that's a huge part of my life. And I love that part, but it can also be very stifling. And so in academics, we're trained that accessibility and joy are shaming. Like if your work is accessible and you take a lot of joy in it, that means you're not smart. And so my whole career has been kind of pushing against that. So I wrote myself my first permission slip on a sticky note. I just wrote, I give myself permission to be goofy, have fun and be excited. And so I just stuck that in my jacket. And so if you watch that first Super Soul Sunday, I am just like grinning ear to ear (laughs) like a freaking crazy person. And how was Oprah with your excitement? Like, what's her dance with how how stoked you are? You know, I think it was so pure that she was like, she was it was really funny. She was yeah, she, she, we had a good time we we together, and we had a really deep connection right off the bat. And yeah. I think there was a moment where she's like, okay, let's do, we need another episode. So yeah. let's just do two of these. And I was like, okay. Do you think, no, you know what I said? I said, do you think that's okay? Do you think they're going to be okay with that? <laughs> <laughs> she, I'll never forget Permission. the look she had on her face. Oh my god! Was she was funny. like, "Do I think who is going to be okay with it?" Like in this very serious tone. And I was like, "Oh shit, you yes, okay." And then she just started laughing. I said, "I don't have anything else to wear." And so she's like, "You can just borrow something from me." So I borrowed one of her shirts, and then, um, but then I'll tell you what happened. She said. Dr. Maya Angelou is here in the green room. I'm going to film her after this. And I was like, I just, the blood ran out of my face. I'm a huge, I mean, I've taught her before. And so she's like, would you like to meet her? And at first I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to be, you know, because I get really like, I don't want to impose. And I was like, um, and she's like, I think you want to meet her. And I was like, I totally want to meet her. Is it okay? And she's like, yeah. So I walked in. I was like, hi, Dr. Angela. Nice to meet you. And she had watched my whole show because there's, you know, TVs in the green room. And she said, 
oh, baby, you need to keep telling the truth. You need to keep doing this work. And so I was holding your hand and I said, I'll never get through this story without crying. But I said, you know, at the end of my classes, I always, I turn off the lights and I play you reciting, I shall not be moved. And she grabbed my other hand and she sang, like a tree planted by the river, I shall not be moved. I have goosebumps I know. on my kneecaps right now. I know. I just, I just fell out. Like, yeah. What do you do? That's, you fall out. That's a transmission. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was incredible. And I thought, had I not written that permission slip to be myself, we probably wouldn't have had that connection. I probably would not have had the courage to go meet her. So yeah. So the permission to be uncool and excited and goofy and celebrate, frick, it's so important. <laughs> well, you know, Eckhart Tolle says enthusiasm, that kind of excitement, is a heightened state of consciousness. And, you know, he used a great word for in relation to all this, which is purity. Like, when it's that pure, like, there's no barnacles of wanting anything on it. You're just happy and grateful to be there, and just, it's a zing. Um, That's okay. true. We do a multiple choice intermission, and this is it gold or silver? Gold. Mixed metal. Okay. Uh, hardback, paperback, or we're going to just be quirky here and say Kindle. Hardback, paperback, or Kindle? Hardback. Hardback. Okay. Um, in terms of calendar, digital or paper? Oh, God, digital. Really? I'm a little surprised by that. Okay. Um, Leonard Cohen or Rumi? Oh, God, Leonard Cohen. <laughs> while reading Rumi but um, like I love both but I am obsessed with Leonard Cohen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's Canadian I just always have to say that Uh, (laughs) and so is Rush so is Rush Getty all the way so is Jim Carrey Michael Buble I could go out see when you're Canadian you're born with an implicit inferiority complex so like the 12 (laughs) famous people we have every time they come up you just go he's he's Canadian Uh, Um, sleep or sex Oh, there will not be one without the other. <laughs> oh my God. What a great answer. Best answer yet. Uh, let's end it there. Linda, take it away. Oh gosh, I love it. All right. When did you first see yourself as an author? Was this a long-term goal or did it just happen as a result of your work? About a year into therapy where I said to my therapist, no, I'm not a writer. And she's like, that's so weird because I'm like looking across my room at my shelf where your book is. And she's like, I don't understand. And I said, no, I'm not a writer. Like, no, I use words to express ideas because that's the only format I have. And she said, I use words to express ideas. I'm not a writer. And I said, no, I'm not a writer like Pearl S. Buck, like Toni Morrison, you know. And she said, so who would need to give you permission to call yourself a writer? And I was like, okay, well, now you're just pissing me off. And then she's like, I don't care. Like, you're a writer. And I still really struggle with it because I'm a storyteller for sure. And if I could just talk all my work, I would prefer it. But that's where I am. Brene, how do you prep for a speaking gig? If talking is your mode, do you have your five points? Are you a memorizer? Are you improv? Improv for sure. With no notes. I always have an arc and an opening story that has to be true, real, and current. Opening story that has to be true, real, and current. Love it. And do you know how you're going to end? Yeah. Do you have like a sandwich? No, for sure. Because I have to watch the people in the audience. So like 
two of my requirements when I speak are that the house lights can't be darker than 50% because I have to be able to see the people I'm talking to, which could get really hard if they're filming you, which I don't let happen very often because I feel like when you're in a space talking about the stuff I talk about, it's a really sacred space and it's to be enjoyed and leaned into while we're doing it. And I don't know that it's for other people. So I always struggle with event organizers around that. And then the other thing is I do most of my work in big corporations and I rarely, if ever, will go if the top level people are not in the room. Oh, nice. Mm, you got some standards. Those are good ones. <laughs> I do have some pretty serious standards. Mm-hmm. Just because what happens when you go into a big company, a Fortune 200 company or something, and you talk to people about being brave and you're talking to people about daring greatly at work, and then the leadership's not in the room and not supporting that. Mm-hmm. Do you have like a saboteur or let me put this in past tense. Did you have a saboteur in your head? Was that kind of the image of a person that you had to get over? Like for me, it used to be dudes from Silicon Valley wearing $300 Adidas sneakers. I just like, those are not my guy. Like they're just going to think I'm flaky and new age and like I might be sexy, but she's like way too out there. And I really had to work on caring and not caring about them like was there a caricature for you yeah I mean like I think I wrote my first book with a mobile of critic pictures above me I think I wrote with all my critics in mind like my dissertation methodologist a lot of academic stuff you know it's hard because with my work I do everything from like special ops in the military to you know like I get in front of a lot of different people And I think because I've sat across from thousands of people doing this interviewing as a researcher, you can wear your $700 hoodie. I mean, Silicon Valley is a rough place, and I used to spend a lot more time there than I do now. I'm from there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hard. It's It's a rough place. My mom worked at Stanford University, and I grew up with a whole mess of PhDs, and I didn't think any of them were very happy. No, I mean, that's right. And so I think because I know that, I don't have a lot of fear around it because you can look any way you want, but I know your story. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that you've got a story that'll break my heart. You got it all armored up. But the question for me becomes, and I don't know, Danielle, if you ever did this with your critic person, but the problem for me is I need to watch out and not say yes to things I don't want to be doing to prove that I can win those people over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Very careful. Yeah. yeah. Okay, favorite literary hero, living or dead? I don't know. Okay, then what are you reading right now? A friend of mine just sent me Charing Cross Road. Have y'all heard of that? It's a series of letters back and forth. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. I hear it's wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing. And I just finished Glennon Doyle Melton's new book that's Uh, coming out in the fall. uh, She's amazing. Mama Scary, for people who don't know. Yes, and her new book. I was literally trembling when I finished it. Really? Yeah. Can we talk for a second now that you've brought her up about the amazing million dollars that y'all raised together for refugees? Yeah. I mean, how did that feel to raise a million dollars in 24 hours? It was incredible because I think the mean contribution was like $15 and it was $1.4 million or something. It exceeded our expectations. And I think, It was a really great reminder to me how people want to help, but they want to believe that the small things matter when they totally do matter. And we forget that in our country and our world. 
Yeah. It was amazing. I was honored to be a part of it. It was really it. fun to watch and be a part of. You know, I donated a couple times, but it was just, I felt like Thank I was you. part of a community. And each time you all would send out your notes, I would cry. I mean, it was really, you tapped into a lot of love. Yeah, it was just a lot of love. It's beautiful to watch. Um, can you see the seeds of your creativity now and your journey now from when you were a child? Is that James Hillman's acorn theory? It was always there? Yes. So what was that as a child for you? Did I mean, you have like a Lucy booth and everybody gave you five cents and you verified <laughs> Oh, that is the best. Um, I can no, see no, it. A Brene yeah, booth. A no, BB. No, a Lucy booth for sure. No. You know that movie where they say, I see dead people? Yep. Mm-hmm. Six cents. Yeah, I definitely had a sense that shame was a very common parenting tool, not only in my house, but everywhere around me, kind of Texas culture. And I could tell that everyone that was tough was broken. And I could tell that all the weird, hard, scary things I felt, everyone else felt them too, but no one talked about them. (laughs) Oh, you did see dead people. Yeah, I totally kind of saw dead people. (laughs) I saw brokenhearted people. Okay, so this is the perfect segue then before we get ready to close. You and Steve, I imagine, since you've been married for so long, are very open-hearted with each other. And I also know that when you're in a long-term relationship, you get the chance to practice vulnerability over and over and over again. I think, you know, I was single not too long ago, six years ago, and it's almost easier in the beginning to date because you don't know each other. It's easier to be sexy. It's easier to be... Anything you want to be, but the more you get to know somebody, the more vulnerable you feel, or at least I did. Does that come up for you? Yeah, totally. And I think what happens, you know, I think mystery is sexy, Mm. but then there's a place where there's a shift, a pivot in love, where vulnerability becomes sexy. What's sexy is the guy who holds my hair back when I'm throwing up, (laughs) the guy who's sitting next to me in hard parent-teacher conferences. That's what's amazing. The person who there's not a whole lot for us to discover that's new about each other, but there's such depth to our love and we have to keep practicing that vulnerability because that armor grows back like freaking, I don't know, like fungus. Like if you're not careful, the default is to protect your heart, I think. And so what sexy changes? God, I love that. I think that's one of the most beautiful answers I've ever heard. Thank you. I think we should have an award. It should be the Truth Bomb Award. <laughs> <laughs> and today, you just like, well, this, I don't, does this sound flattering? You're a big, juicy Truth Bomb. <laughs> I'll work on that. I'm going to finesse it. Oh, and I'll get it. oh my gosh. Change the thing. I like it. All right. Always the same closing um, poetically. What's the song inside you? metaphorically, that still needs to be sung. Like, you really, you need to do this before the end of your days. No, probably something on spirituality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you say just a little more? Nope. Not because I don't want to, because I don't know what it is. I think there's something, I don't know, I think there's something for the quiet majority Yes. who are all looking for something yeah. and all the loud mouths have all the platforms when it comes to faith and spirituality. Oh. And I'm growing increasingly unable to be quiet about it. Oh, I love it. 
And you know, now that you've stated it, publishers are just going to ask you for that book without your proposal. And you're going to yes. have to feel permissioned about it. Yeah, and I'm going to totally say no. But you've always, so you're already you're evolving as we speak because you're moving from, hey, you call them, I have an idea, to as soon as the sales are going to call you and say, we heard that idea. So <laughs> no proposal necessary. Um, truth bombs and depths and... We're grateful. And I know everybody who's listening to this is just saying, wow, thank you. So thank you, Brene. So thank you all so much. Love, love, love. Appreciate it. So much fun. Thank you all for having me on. I love this. It was a great conversation. I, I needed it. So thank oh, you. Us too. Bye, sweetie. Bye, y'all. Wasn't that a great interview? As you guys know, the clicks, the stars, the great reviews on any kind of podcast helps us get the word out there. So click, click and do your thing and know that we are ever grateful. Thank you. To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on.